Mark chapter 12. It's a really cool passage. Jesus was uh, hanging out with his, the Sadducees were interested in him. These religious leaders of the day were, were fascinated by Jesus. You know, uh, can you imagine getting to hear Jesus teach? I mean, that would have been crazy. Uh, they, they, those that heard him teach said, man, you, you have to come from God because no one can teach with the authority that you teach with unless you were from God. And uh, so, so of, of course, like all of us, we would be intrigued by him if we heard him teach. And, and uh, Mark chapter 12, this, um, one of the scribes, verse 28, one of the scribes approached Jesus after they had this discussion about the resurrection, they approached Jesus. When he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which command is the most important of all? This is the most important, Jesus answered. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have correctly said uh, that he is the one and there is no one else except him. Can you imagine going, oh, Jesus, I just want to prove that you're right. Good job, you know. Um, and to love him with all your heart and your under- all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbors yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered intelligently, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared to ask him any more questions. But what an amazing statement, uh, an amazing conversation that, I mean, this scribe thinking he's going to be, oh, good job, Jesus. I'm going to tell him how good of a job he did. But then Jesus turns it around and says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. I wonder about that, man. I wonder if he ever came to Christ. I'm curious about that when we get to heaven and discern his story and and get to see uh, maybe the movie of that and determine, uh, just see what happened there. But, but, you know, in this, Jesus tells us an important challenge. This is the great commandment. Okay, there's the great commission in Matthew 28, then the great commandment that, that we're commanded to love God with our heart, with all of our heart, with our mind, with our soul, with our strength. And, and then he says the second commandment, summar, summarizing the Old Testament, uh, the, the Ten Commandments, if you will, it's just a summary of those, that, that uh, that's what it looks like to love God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then love your neighbors yourself. And, and you know, one of the things that's important about this class, that we're, we're pushing each other. We're sharpening one another. We're, the goal is not <clears throat> to entertain. The goal is to uh, wrestle with uh, the things of God, what God has revealed to us. And, and you know, it should be a common practice for us. We, we, one of the struggles I have, and in, in I, I fall into it as well, um, we live in this McDonald's uh, mentality, uh, this fast food mentality. We want microwave. I mean, you know, anybody remember when microwaves came out? I mean, 
I mean, Margaret, my mother-in-law, told a story about when Paul surprised her with a microwave, and she was so excited. And now, you know, we don't know life without, and I mean, there's not a house without a microwave. I mean, we, we, we just don't know life without microwaves. But um, um, we live in this fast food mentality that we want it really fast. But, but, you know, there are many parts, many times I read the Bible, and I think, yeah, I got to think about that for a while. It doesn't come fast because, you know, and I think God intended that, uh, his word to be that way because we need to reflect. We need to think. You know, I had a professor at OBU who I have the deep respect for to this day, um, Dr. Evans. I mean, he was old back when I was in college, and he's still alive, uh, last I heard. And, and, uh, but just an amazing man. He would always say, all right, boys. It's time to have some mental sweat today, and, uh, and we'd have to mentally wrestle with some things of God. And that's what this, this is about. I mean, we're going to have some mental sweat today. And often, if you study the Bible correctly, you're going to leave going, yeah, i got to go think about that for a while. I don't know about that. Um, but but I, I love this, this class. I love this, this pursuit. And... and, and um, and honestly, this should be a, a normal pursuit of ours as followers of Christ. Um, but, but I wanted to kind of, uh, I know some of these points were in your notes last week, but, but I was unable to come last week because of just some uh, a, a challenging situation in our, our lives. But, but, uh, but I wanted to kind of recap uh, a little bit. Like, you see that point there, uh, everyone is a theologian. You know that, right? I mean, most of the time when you think about theology, people go, ooh, I'm not a theologian. Man, I can't. I don't think like that. You know, anybody ever thought that? Anybody ever thought that? Like, like I've heard people go, like, I remember when I was going to seminary, I had people go, don't let them mess you up with all that theology, you know. And, uh, and they told me that. I remember a guy sitting me down and saying, Chris, i got to talk to you. Before you go to OBU and you go to, don't get messed up with all that theology. But the reality is every one of us are theologians. If you ever, anybody that thinks about ultimate questions, you know that term ultimate questions, uh, these, these things like uh, your life and contemplate God. Theology is simply the study of God. And so anybody that thinks about God and his purposes, what they're doing is theology. And every one of us thinks about that. I mean, I mean, it's common for man. Man, from the beginning, has thought about God, has contemplated how we have come to exist and have, has contemplated these ultimate questions, life and death and purpose and meaning. And that's, that's theology. It's some philosophy as well, but, but it's theology. You're, you're, you're contemplating who God is and what he has done for you. Now, now, the question is not, are you a theologian? The question should be, are you a good theologian? Is your theology good? Is it based in truth, or is it based in something else? But, but I want you to see, and I want to encourage you with this truth that, that everyone is a theologian. And, uh, and, 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 and let's think about that. What, what's interesting about, about God is that he... Man, from the beginning, has been in, I believe, in pursuit of God, contemplated God. But, but as man contemplates God, you know what we discover? That God has been in pursuit of us. 
before we even thought about seeking after him. And that's amazing to me that God came to us. God's, as, as man contemplates God, we discover God's been pursuing us. And, and that's, a, that's something that just has grabbed my heart. And, and, and so since God has chosen to reveal himself to us, to show us what he's like, and, and that's what we see scripture is, is the revelation of God. God is, is wanting us to know him, so he's chosen to, to reveal himself, to help us understand him. And, and so because God has done this, shouldn't we put forth some effort to try to understand him? I mean, shouldn't we work at, at, at thinking through these things and seeking after God and, and, and know him as thoroughly as possible? And, and that's kind of the pursuit. I, I pray that we are in a, a lifelong pursuit of coming to know God. But I want you to see that, that everybody is a theologian. Let, let me ask you a question. Uh, has anybody ever cooked anything? Raise your hand if you've taken a cookbook and cooked something. Okay. Who's cooked something well <laughs> or not well, right, right? You know, uh, how many of you have ever uh, gone to, uh, like I went to, uh, last night I prayed at the city council meeting in Owasso. Anybody ever done that? Anybody gone to a city council meeting? Not prayed, but gone to a city council meeting or a school board meeting? Who's gone to a school board meeting? Raise your hand. Okay. Um, how many of you have ever, um, like, sat down with a friend and help them through a problem. Raise your hand if you've ever done that. Okay. What about um, who's ever balanced their checkbook? Who, raise your hand. Who's balanced your checkbook? Hey, most of them are like, ah, oh, I need to do that. Um, uh, and someone's going, some of the younger guys are going, what's a checkbook? I don't, I don't even know what a checkbook is. Um, it used to be these things you'd write checks and you'd get money. and Yeah, 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 that's all on your phone. Man, gosh, I'm kind of intimidated because I didn't know there were so many chemists in this room. If you've ever cooked, you're, that's called chemistry, okay? If you've ever gone to a school board meeting, there's a lot of political scientists in here. If you've gone to a school board meeting, or a, that's a political science. If you have ever uh, uh, talked with a friend, that's called psychology. You've got a lot of psychologists in here. Most of your hands went up. You know, if you've ever balanced your checkbook, y'all are mathematicians. I mean, that's what that is, okay? So... So now you're also theologians because you're thinking about God. So don't be intimidated by that thought. I mean, I mean, granted, God has blessed Rob Lewis, seriously, with a mind and a heart for theology. But, but, and, and, and this is why I'm grateful for uh, the heavy lifting that he does in this class because it's a strength of his. It's a, it's a strike zone of his. And, and so I love it that, you know, when you... When you got a good pitcher, you got to let them pitch, right? Uh, that's what I've learned, learning about baseball. But so everyone's a theologian, but, but let's understand this. Theologies are not equal. And that's something I want, want us to see. you got these little boxes underneath there. And, and, and part of notes that I make, it's, it's part of my mind. It's all these little boxes and pieces. And so it kind of drives Rob crazy, but he humors me uh, with some of these things. So, uh, but, but look at those boxes. Uh, you know, not all theologies are equal. Uh, for instance, there's different types of theology, like folk theology. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard that term. It's the idea that, that um, you, people hold beliefs based on some kind of blind faith or some kind of tradition. 
You ever known about these folk theologies? Maybe, like this is why I always say we need to really evaluate our theology because sometimes we have folk theology. Folk theology is not a good thing, in my opinion. It's not good because it's, it's usually a belief we hold because our grandma said it or because, you know, like people that will say, you know, the Bible says God helps those who helps themselves, you know. It's some of these theologies, these beliefs we hold that are really not based in any authoritative uh, teaching, but it's more of a tradition or, or some kind of, of blind belief. And there's a lot of folk theology. I'll say all the time, we need to evaluate our beliefs and our practices. And, 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 and you know, there have been times... Uh, that I discover that I hold some beliefs that are contrary to Scripture. And when I discover beliefs that are contrary to Scripture, I am compelled to change my beliefs. That's hard to do, isn't it? Change your beliefs? That's hard to do. But, But whenever we find beliefs that are contrary to Scripture, we're compelled to change our beliefs to line up with what God's Word says. Same is true with our practices. We have practices because, you know, that we have done for a long time. You know, and, and, and if ever we discover practices in our life that are contrary to Scripture, we're compelled to change our practices to line up with God's Word. Folk, that's a lot of folk theology, and, and it's important that we evaluate theology. Uh, another um, kind of theology is lay theology, which is simply this. It's, it's when Christians begin to dig into the resources of their faith, putting their mind and heart together and understanding what they believe. This is good. This is a good step. When you take your beliefs and say, let's compare our beliefs with what God's Word says. I mean, because I think everybody's a theologian, but can I tell you what we should all be? We should all be Christian theologians, meaning that we're going to allow Christ and what Christ has done and who, who Jesus is and what the Bible says to, to influence our thinking. And so lay theology is when you begin to start moving from a belief that is simply a tradition, but it's really grounded in what what the Bible says. It's, it's grounded in truth. And you're examining this going, okay, is this really a true belief to hold on to? And that's lay theology. <clears throat> Ministerial theology is another <clears throat> uh, level of theology, if you will, <clears throat> where that's when trained leaders established formal training to interpret Scripture and apply it to your life. Okay, so trained theology, some of you have progressed, if you will, to train theology where you've taught classes. Like Brad said, you know, there's going to be classes offered in a couple weeks. And I'd encourage you to be a part of those and and learn to, you know, some of you will will be teachers of theology and and teachers of God's Word and and where you're you're really interpreting Scripture. Uh, and applying it to life. That's ministerial theology. Professional theology, that, that's where the training moves from a, um, I'm just studying these truths that are grounded in God's word, but, but it becomes a vocation. It becomes a job that you do. I mean, I mean, we've watched in front of our eyes Rob 
make this progression, this transition from, you know, he, he was a motorcycle kid, you know, doing stupid things on a motorcycle, jumping things that he shouldn't jump. And I told him, hey, you ought to play tennis. I mean, I've never broken my ankle or put a peg leg through or some, whatever you, you drive. I got hit with a tennis ball. It's about, that's the worst of my injuries all my life. But, oh, it's adrenaline playing tennis. You just try it. Um, uh, it's a rush, um, Steve. Come on. Um, but, but, you know, uh, professional theology is when the training moves to a vocation, studying the tools of theology and instructing others in their use. And that's what, that's what we're benefiting from tonight is this trained this professional theology is Rob uh, and, and I have gotten to go to seminary. Rob is about to pursue, begin his doctoral pursuit of, of trained theology, and this is a blessing, and this is good. Then you have the last level of theology is academic theology. Now, this is this high theology where you are oftentimes disconnected from the church and from living out faith in everyday life and I've met a lot of these guys, these people that are that are in academic theology, and many of them are are really not concerned with God, but only thoughts about God. And so, th- these are uh, people that are like, I'm just going to go study concepts of God, but I really don't have a desire to, um, um, you know, follow what I'm teaching or what I'm learning about. And you might think, how crazy is that? That's very normal in academic, in some academic theology circles. Not so much in our seminaries where we're training to go into church and teach and preach and and all those things. But But in academia, you have a lot of people that are just studying the concept of God. So if you look at these, these boxes, the, the extremes are not where we need to be. We need to be somewhere in the middle here between lay theology, ministerial, and professional, where we're really discerning, God, what are you teaching us? And, 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 and this is where we are tonight. We're, we're in this process of, of digging into the truths about God. Now, as a definition, theology seeks to understand God's being, God's nature, and God's relationship to the world. And this is what I pray we, we do as we turn our face to the person of God. As we looked last week, that God is self-existent, a, a, a mind-boggling concept, one that's, that's difficult for us in our finite state to really understand. How, how does the finite grasp the infinite? It's pretty difficult. It's, it's impossible. So, so it's, uh, but, it's, but it's good to wrestle through these things. Uh, tonight, the Trinity which is a very, very important doctrine. It's what makes us Christian. It's what sets us apart from Mormons and from Muslims and from every other uh, pursuit in the world. It's, it's the Trinity, and it's, and it's miraculous because it's God coming here um, and God relating to us. That, that idea that that as we grasp the things of God, it's through the Trinity that we understand, oh my goodness, God came for us. Wow. 
I mean, it's not us pursuing him. It's him pursuing us. It's miraculous. It's amazing. Now, as we, this is very important, and I, I want to, and I put it in here just because I think this is so important as we dive into the study of God. And I hope that you use this for the rest of your life as, a, as kind of a litmus test on whether or not you're studying theology correctly. Because I've, I've been in a lot of circles with guys that are wrestling and grappling with theology and the things of God, and, and, I've, and, and I've, I've fallen short on this a few times in my life. But, but the correct study of theology, here's what it does for you. You can discern if you're studying theology correctly if this is taking place. If you are growing in awe of God, you're like, oh, God, you are so big. And you, you can tell that you're, you're on the right track. You're studying theology correctly. If, if you study theology and you, are, you have more of a humility in your heart, okay, you're studying theology correctly. Because you don't approach God going, Hey, let me, oh, I got, hey, what's up? I got this. No, no. When we, every time you look in Scripture, when someone comes into the presence of God, what do they do? Woe is me, Isaiah. Isaiah 6 says, I cried. I'm ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. I mean, this is, we, we know God is all-powerful. And we will see that. So when you study God, it, it leads you to humility. It leads you to obedience to the Lord. I mean, that's how you know you're studying theology correctly. If you're like, Lord, I'm going to do what you say. I'm going to follow you. Now, can I tell you some ways that you can discern if you're studying theology incorrectly? If you begin to become prideful in your intellect. Let me tell you something. That's, that's, you're getting off track there. If you're, if you're looking at, man, I, I got this. You know, there have been times that I have had the attitude. Dude, you don't understand. I got, let me, let me explain this to you. And, and God has, has rebuked me, has, has gotten, gotten in front of me and said, you know what, you really need to have a little more, um, uh, less pride in your own intellect because Chris you need to that's a sin that's sinful uh, when when you have arrogance in your heart if you study theology and you're led to more arrogance like like uh, man I, I I've, I've got this down it's, it's a problem if you're studying theology and you find yourself getting critical of of other people that maybe don't think like you. That's a problem. Because you know what? We're going to wrestle through the things of God. And there, there are some things that God has clearly revealed in the scripture, in the word. And, and you know what? We need, to, we need to heed those and listen to those. There are things about God that we don't know the full picture. God just has not made it all clear. And with that, we're humble. We're humble about that. We have, you know, patience with that. We have like, yeah, we'll see about that. We, I'm not saying we don't form opinions because, you know, Rob and I have opinions and there, there are parts of theology we disagree on and we'll wrestle with and go, yeah, you know, you may be right. I don't know how it comes together. We'll, we'll see. And, uh, 
That's why I like writing on death, because no one can prove me wrong. And so, so, um, so I'm like, hey, well, we'll see. But, um, but you know, I love this pursuit, and, I, and I'm grateful for it. And, uh, and I'm grateful that you're here. And as we dive into this very, very important doctrine, let's, let's approach this with some awe, some humility, and some gratitude that God's uh, revealed some things to us that we can know about him. Mm-hmm. So, Rob, come on up. That's awesome, Chris. Um, I really appreciate Chris's uh, contribution in, in that Man, he's helping us think through this stuff in a practical light. We never want to get derailed and, and only think about theology from a theoretical perspective. If it's not applied, it doesn't matter. Um, and so take that to heart. If, if, if you have, and I'm not going to continue preaching on what he said, but I love it and it's so important. If you have any part of your heart that says, I've got God figured out, you are wrong. You are wrong. On the other side, he's knowable. Right? And so we don't go into hopeless skepticism that there's nothing we can know about God because God has revealed himself, but that's always a humbling experience. And I love what um, Dr. Lloyd-Jones used to say. He says, you know how when you've had a true encounter with God, you walk with a limp? And, and that's the truth. When you have had a true encounter with God, you walk with a limp. So today we're going to get into this very complex, very difficult um, topic of the Trinity. And I can tell you uh, that this is one of the most confusing um, doctrines, if you will, and one of the most misunderstood doctrines, yet it is, in my opinion, one of the most important doctrines to understand. Isn't that interesting that God's like, hey, this is really, really important, and it's also going to be really, really hard but that's the way it is. Um, so I want to, as we get started, I, I do want to ask for, for those of you who were here last week, um, what was the three things that we said are important things to th- think about as far as the aseity of God? Eternal. What, he's eternal, okay. What Necessary. Necessary. Someone else. <laughs> What's the last one? Yes, exactly. He is the uncreated, self-existent, but good job. I know you had all three of them. Uh, and that, that concept really does set the stage for what we're going to do tonight. So when you think about theology, you have to think about it in, in the perspective that it's very connected. So we talked about that there is a line, right? And I know my marker is super thin, forgive me. But the idea is that we count off minutes and seconds and hours and months and years and so on and so forth. And that idea is that we have a temporal existence. And so we are going on this path and experiencing change in time. But remember, there's this concept that God transcends time and he lives in that present tense, right? He has this, everything is present. There is never a beginning. There is never an end. And so one of the questions we posed last week was, what was there before God? Can anyone remember the correct answer to that question? Well, no, nothing isn't correct. There never was a before God. We can't say nothing because that would mean that there was a time when God didn't exist. That's not true. There has never been a time when God did not exist. So when anyone says, well, what was there before God? That's a wrong assumption. It's a, the premise is wrong. 
The premise is wrong, is that there is a time in which God did not exist, and he is eternal, truly eternal, always, always existing. So have this in your mind, and one of the things we talked about was that a, a byproduct of that is that there can only be one true God. All right? So why did we say that that was important? Why, why do we say that this is true based on the premise that God is eternal, he's necessary, and he's self-existent? Why does that lead us to the conclusion that there is only one true God? Okay, that's right. And you can't earn Godship. You can't get into the I've existed forever category if at some point in time you began to exist, right? So we had that you contingently exist or you exist necessarily. And that's why we have to say that there really is only one true God because you can never get into this. These attributes of God are not transferable. So as we think through tonight, have that in your mind that God's attributes are not transferable. And we're going to wrestle with some heresies that would argue that they are, and that is actually um, gets into some really bad stuff because it doesn't make sense. Um, with that in mind, I do want to paint a quick picture as we get into tonight's actual discussion here on the Trinity. I want to set this up by talking about something important in theology. Can anyone tell me these two words? Dogmatic and doctrine. Let's start with the first one. Can anyone tell me about this word? Dogmatic. It's okay if you can't, but if anyone wants to jump out, they can. What usually comes to mind when you think dogmatic? Is it positive or negative? negative. Most of the time it's negative, isn't it? They're so dogmatic. Well, let me tell you something. In theology, this is actually a good word. <laughs> um, but before I explain this one, let's talk about this one. What is doctrine? Teaching. Good. Excellent. Excellent. One time I was having a discussion with someone um, years and years ago, and I, you know, I'm trying to learn about the Baptist. Like I said, last week I had a confession. I haven't always been a Baptist. I'm, I'm late to the Baptist game. I'm trying to figure out Baptist history and how this all works. But one gentleman said, oh, we're Baptists. We don't have any doctrines. We just have the Bible. Well, I was like, huh? It didn't, it didn't make sense to me. But he was, he was absolutely committed to this concept that as, as a Baptist, you throw away doctrines and you just have the Bible. Well, if doctrine literally means teaching, aren't you going to have some teaching <laughs> that should be based in the Scripture? You should, shouldn't you? So we hold to some doctrines, and some doctrines are essential doctrines, doctrines that you can't get away from. Other doctrines are, uh, you know, that secondary and tertiary. There's, there's different levels of doctrines and their importance and whether or not we should hold to them or split churches over them, okay? Because there are essential doctrines that no one should stay in a church if you are um, objecting to an essential doctrine. Does everyone agree with that? One of the essential doctrines we're going to argue is the Trinity. If you ever go to a church that denies the Trinity that is worth splitting over. Now, there's secondary issues, secondary doctrines that you can stick together and have a little tension, and that's okay. And that gets into, you know, Calvinism, Arminianism, eschatology. How is it all going to end? You've got all these different views, 
we can do life together. I had, a, I had a theology professor once who said, you know what, even some secondary issues you might want to break up over, depending on the maturity of the church, because if the maturity of the church isn't there, sometimes those things just make life really, really miserable and, and starts to cramp ministry. But what we want to say is doctrine is important, but I want to come back to this word, dogmatic. In theology, there's a, a branch that's called dogmatic theology. So you've got dogmatic theology, biblical theology, systematic theology. Um, and dogmatic theology basically is the idea that when we talk about dogmas in theology, these are the essentials. Okay, so this right here, you have to have. Dogmatic in the sense that you have to agree with them. You have to, assi- you have to sign up for them. One of those dogmatic things is the Trinity. We will be dogmatic. Now, another way to think of dogmatic isn't like we think of it as authoritarian without really a cause. Dogmatic is really the kind of concept that it's a um, self-evident truth. And it's a, it's a self-evident truth. It just makes sense. And, and it, you can't do without it. In theology, there's some things that are just self-evident truths based on the scripture. The Trinity is one of them. Now, if that's true, then why do we have so many people rejecting it? Well, that's a whole big conversation, but we're going to talk about why you should, based in Scripture, accept it tonight. But I want to have in your heart and your mind, dogmatic isn't always a bad word, and think of it like this. There are some doctrines that you have to absolutely hold to. So turn to your Scripture in your Bible. Turn to um, the book of Psalms in, in, in chapter 110. 110 is one of the most quoted Old Testament passages. Uh, it's in the New Testament, it's, it's, it, it quotes this psalm um, very, very often. And I'm just going to read a little bit of it. It says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until, you, until I make your enemies your footstool. And then he goes on and on. And this is an interesting idea. The Lord says to my Lord. You see that capital L-O-R-D? That's the old uh, Tetragrammaton, Yahweh, Yahweh says. This is, this is God, God of gods. This is the God, right? Uh, God the Father, if you will, saying to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now, I want you to real quick turn over to Matthew, and we'll check out chapter 22 in the book of Matthew. And, and let's look at Jesus referring back to this. Matthew um, 22, verse 44. Actually, back up to, to, to 43. And this is Jesus. Jesus said to them, How is it that, that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus goes on, verse 45. If then David calls him Lord... How is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Once again, isn't that beautiful? Jesus had a way with people, didn't he? Literally, he is the most intelligent man to ever walk the face of the planet. And he was a man, wasn't he? Okay, because that's important. That's important. He was fully God. He is fully God, excuse me, and he is fully man. He's the eternal God-man. So when he walked this earth, he was absolutely in very nature God, and he was also 100% man. 
And he is saying right here, that everyone knew that this was, this was future tense, that Psalm 110 was future tense. It was pointing to the Messiah. The Jews had this concept of the Messiah. And Jesus right here says, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Do you get that? Because if you're my boy, I'm the authority. If you're my son, I'm over authority. I'm, I'm in a position of authority over you. How can you be my Lord if you're my son? But here's the concept. This, was, this wasn't talking about just a mere person. This was the Messiah. This is Jesus Christ himself. And this is such an interesting, interesting idea. Going back to the Old Testament, Jesus Christ pulling that in, and we could talk a lot about the importance of the Old Testament, but let me just tell you real quick, Jesus liked the Old Testament. Jesus quoted the Old Testament. The Old Testament is relevant, and I'll stop there. But let's get into some of this tonight. Um, can everyone see past this board? Uh, hopefully you can see, okay. Uh, if, if not, I'll move them for you. So I want to have a quick preface here by um, Greg Kokel. Greg Kokel is an awesome Christian apologist. If you haven't ever heard of him, uh, he's, he's a great guy, super influential, influenced, influenced me a lot. He's another Biola guy, um, and actually I get the honor uh, in a couple of weeks to go back to Biola um, and, and sit under his teaching again, and so I'm really excited about that. But this right here, he's going to give us a quick look at the difference between heresy, heterodoxy, and orthodoxy. And you might think, what are those words? I think he does a decent job explaining it. Well, for a Christian, and he or she hears some doctrine that they disagree with to label it heresy. Well, heresy is a very particular word. It, 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 it is meant, I think, largely to capture um, the notion that whatever is in question is so far off of accurate theological teaching that the person who believes it's off the reservation. That is, they're no longer a Christian. Heresy disqualifies you from salvation. Generally speaking, that's the way I think the word ought to be used. It is not just bad theology. It is bad theology, but there's lots of bad theology that doesn't qualify as heresy, uh, that might be considered heterodox, but not heretical. Heterodox means not sound, but not off the reservation. Um, and then you have other things that bad theology, meaning that it's not accurate, but it really is a legitimate difference between people, and it's hard to figure out in many cases what the issue is. Some people believe that you ought to baptize through immersion, and that's the only thing that is appropriate for baptism. Others say sprinkling is legitimate. Now look at it, it, they can't both be right as stated. So one could be called bad theology, but I hope you see that probably this is not really, really high on the theological pecking order. So it might be wrong, but it, I would even call that heterodox. Heterodox is something that's seriously wrong, seriously bad, but not off the reservation. And then you got heresy. Then you've got teaching that is inconsistent with the creeds, inconsistent with the classical teaching of the church. And these things would relate to the person and the work of Christ, the work of the cross, the resurrection, the deity of Christ, um, the personality of the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, um, and things of that order. You start deviating.
And if we use the word heresy to describe merely bad theology that might be heterodox or just different from what other people think is right, well, then we kind of water down the word, and it can't do the work it needs to do when we really need the word. So let's leave the word heresy for the kind of bad thinking that, that takes somebody completely out of classical Christianity. Let's use heterodoxy uh, to describe errant teachings within the pale, and let's just talk about the other things as mere differences of opinion that we can't both be right about, but uh, are not that substantial in the big picture. So I hope that gives you a little bit of clarity on when we talk about heresy, um, we are talking about the things, as he points out, technically disqualifies you from being a Christian. You can't hold to uh, non-Trinitarian beliefs and technically call yourself a Christian. Now, what does that do? There's a lot of people floating around um, saying, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe in the Trinity. The Mormons are are one. Jehovah's Witnesses, they got a weird view of it as well. But they literally will tell you, oh, we're Christians. We're Christians. And I'm not saying that to beat them up. I'm making that's a point in that no, that is technically heresy and disqualifies you from the group, from the category Christian. All throughout church history, the Trinity has been an essential doctrine, a dogmatic point, something that you cannot dismiss or, or get away from and still call yourself a Christian. So as we go through this, I want you to have in your head uh, these three different places you can live. Orthodoxy, which is good, correct teaching. Heterodoxy, which is ah, maybe some sketchy stuff going on, but it's still within bounds. And then heresy, which is, as he said, totally off the reservation. We are Baptist. Remember first, the first week I said, could anyone, and I don't want you to, but could anyone stand up and, and, and describe the differences between Baptist, Presbyterians, Methodists, Catholics? Could anyone do that? And, I, and I, most people I run into could not tell you the difference between those different denominations, much less get into the actual heresies, okay? Now, we would disagree with the Presbyterians on a few things, like they said, uh, like he was pointing out, sprinkling versus immersion, baby baptizing, those types of things. Those are, those are important, aren't they? We, most of us wouldn't feel comfortable going to a church where that's what that was going on, but we can't call them heretical for doing so. There's a lot of other things that we could talk about, but that's not heretical. But we've got to first understand what is in the box and then understand when someone is outside of the box, okay? And so when we start talking about this, we have to talk about the Trinity. One of the first things that comes out is who is God? And we talked about in in the first week some of his essential natures, some some of his attributes that he is eternal, he is necessary, he is self-existent, all right? But let's talk about him as a person, as a being. And so we'll, we'll start talking about him in light of the Trinity, which we would describe as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all right? So one God, three persons. And this diagram is not a perfect diagram. There is no perfect diagram that you could ever have that would truly capture what the Trinity is. They don't, it just doesn't exist. But I like this one in that it does give us some clarity in that all three of them are equal in deity. They all three are God, but they are 
distinct. They're different. Okay, so when we say that the Father is God, we also have to be clear that He is also not the Son, and He is not the Spirit, and so forth for each and every one of the persons of the Trinity. But there is one God. And, and if we're going to talk about theology, the very first premise of theology is that there is one God, and He does exist. And so when the Christians came along, do you know who the early Christians were? Who were the first Christians? Where'd they come from? Jews. How many gods did the Jews have? One. <laughs> you aren't going to convince these Jewish boys that there's more than one God. Not going to happen. So the early Christians were Jews. And they never gave up monotheism. They never gave that up when they became Christians. But what did they have to do? They had to wrap their mind around this concept, which we see little sprinklings of it throughout the Old Testament, and then very clearly explicit in the New Testament. But these Jews held to monotheism, one God, and when they became Christians, they never gave that up, ever. So we start with that premise that God is one, but then we have to start saying, okay, well, what, is, what does God look like in this concept of existing in three persons. So we start with God the Father. So God the Father is the first person of the Trinity, neither begotten nor proceeding. He concerns himself with the affairs of men, hears and answers prayers, and sent his son Jesus Christ to secure salvation for all who come to him. Now, this gets really, um, really technical really quick, and so I'm not going to go into all those technical details, but one of the first things that we have to say is that there is a hierarchy in the Trinity. Do not forget that. That is something that is very important. And so if we're going to say that there's a hierarchy, it follows as this. There is the Father, and He is first. Okay? Now, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, equal in deity, what did he do? What did he, how did he talk about the Father? What was, what was his concept of the Father? Do what? Yes, okay, we are one, but what else? Respect. What did he say he does? I do the what? Yes! Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. He was obedient to the Father. Does that mean that the Father was more God than he was and that he was a little God? No. But there is a hierarchy in the Trinity. And, 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 and some uh, write it to say, say it like this. This is from Burkhoff, Systematic Theology. I, I quoted some of it last week. It said, The Father is neither begotten by nor proceeds from any other person. Then he goes on and talks about how the Son is. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. But the first concept is that he is neither begotten nor proceeds from any other. Okay, are you ready to get into this, some, some meat here? The Father has nothing before him logically. Remember, in the concept of time regarding God, there was no before, after, none of that. It's all eternal present. But there is a logical order. Now, don't get hung up on that. But there is a logical order, okay? God the Father has nothing before him, but he does have something after him. And now you're starting to think, ooh, was there a time when Jesus didn't exist? No. You're thinking temporal now. There is no temporal. Get that. There is no temporal. But Scripture is clear and, and the creeds are clear that from the Father, we have 
Jesus Christ, who is eternally begotten. Is the, is the Father begotten of any? No. Is Jesus begotten of? Yes. He is begotten of the Father. So we have Jesus the Son, right? So we have a hierarchy that is established. We start with God the Father, Yahweh. When we look at the Old Testament, that's generally the concept that we're getting. We get this idea of God the Father, the Father of all. Um, That's not to say that we don't have other concepts of the Trinity in the Old Testament, but we see God the Father kind of most prominent, most explicit, but you see other traces of the others, and, and we'll talk about that a little bit. But the first concept is that God the Father in the hierarchy, in the logical order, is first. From him, eternally begotten, is the Son. All right. So let's talk about Jesus Christ, the Son. Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity, the only begotten Son of God. He is eternal, not created. Okay. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, taking on the nature of man. Okay, this is a very, very important concept when we talk about that he is begotten and not made. So when we talk about begotten, what, what comes to mind when you think of begotten? You got that, off, you got that on tap? Okay, that's, in, that's interesting. I like that. So the idea, though, is the difference begotten and made. If Jesus was made or created, is another way to say that, then what would that imply? That's right. Then he isn't eternally present because there would be a time before he was. And do, you, do you know that there, was, that there was someone who went around saying that that was, that was exactly their argument? Arius. Does anyone remember the Arian controversy? How about the Council of Nicaea, the Nicene Creed, Council of Nicaea? That guy, Arius, was going around saying Jesus Christ was the first creature. He, he, was, he, was, he was created by God, which means there was a time before and he had this little jingle, uh, as Dr. Robert Godfrey says, it, it was probably a little more snappy in the Greek, but it was basically, before him there was. <laughs> and it was a song they used to chant and get everyone to go, oh, let's go sing this song about how there was something before Jesus was. Well, they had this big thing called uh, the Council of Nicaea to deal with the Arian conflict. Right, right, that's right. In the beginning was the Word, and words with God, the Word was God, all of that. Right, but... The idea we have to have is that Jesus can be, got, be begotten of God and be in a logical order, but having no implication of being created or made. Do not ever settle for that he was ever made by God or he was ever created by God, because that would imply that there was a time before he existed. It's a big question that comes up. And this is, this is difficult for us to, to wrestle with here, but we have to look at this in light of, of, light of what we see um, in, in, in this whole concept that Scripture gives us, that He is the eternal begotten Son of God. We have this. Okay, so let's talk about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit 
is probably the one we feel least comfortable with because we're, he seems a little mysterious to us, right? We see Jesus having an earthly ministry. We can read about him. We see God the Father showing up in, in, in interesting ways in the Old Testament. Uh, and then the Holy Spirit comes along and Jesus is saying, you know what, I'm going to give you this counselor. I'm going to give you this, right? And, and, and it's this interesting idea, but the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, equal to God. The Holy Spirit dwells in all believers as God's guarantee of salvation. He convicts, teaches, guides, comforts, and prays for believers, all right? So in the logical order, we have God the Father. He is not begotten, now the proceeding from but from the Father, Jesus Christ the Son is the eternal begotten. So he's, he's begotten of the Father. And then from here, we have the Holy Spirit. And there's a lot to say about this relationship here. But the basic idea is that he is um, proceeding from the Father and the Son. Uh, so Burkhoff says it like this. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son from all eternity. And he talks about generation and, and spiration. He says, Generation and procession take place within the divine being and imply a certain subordination as to the manner of personal substance. Um, but but, he's, but he, he says that the, the, the essence is the same. We're getting deep, aren't we? We're getting deep. It's, get, it's getting really confusing, isn't it? It's hard. It's hard work. To try to wrap your mind around how God can be so complex and, and, and yet he has revealed himself through scripture that this is how he works. So first off, when we say the Holy Spirit, he proceeds from the Son and from the Father. Once again, we cannot say he's begotten because the scripture doesn't tell us that that's, that's the relationship there. So he's proceeding from but it's a little mystery. We don't, we don't really know exactly what it means, but he's also not made. Because if there was ever a time where the Holy Spirit didn't exist, what is he not? He's not God. You can't transfer that attribute. You can't transfer that eternal nature to something because either you have always been and you can't fail to exist or at some point in time you were created. Yes, sir. I think so. Well, you don't want you. It, he's got. He's. When we say parts, we have to be careful. Um, there's some that would talk about that the whole universe is God. You know, pantheism, panentheism, these different ideas. God is huge. God is. God is. Um, as far as as we can tell. As far as Scripture reveals, so far above us that we're never going to grasp Him entirely. So we see that. But on the same side, what this literally is, what the Scripture literally is, is His self-revelation to us. So if we went off the course and said He's so complex, He's so out of reach that we can't get to Him, then what are we saying about this? They're saying that this doesn't do the job. This doesn't, but it does. It does give us this idea that He is knowable. And you know the doctrine of the Trinity is, is that word itself is nowhere in Scripture. But the, but, the, but the idea is all throughout Scripture. But where did that idea come from? When we say Scripture, where does Scripture come from? 
What is scripture? It's, it's God-breathed, right? That means it contains things that we cannot know unless it was revealed to us. So we can know a lot of things about God, as Romans 1 talks about. We can look at nature. We can understand concepts of God. But unless he specifically reveals what he's like and what his nature is like through Scripture, there's a lot of it that we would never know through nature. Is there, is there something in nature we can look at and say, oh, there's the Trinity? No. Some might say yes, but let's hold on for that because there's not a good analogy out there. All right. So we have God in three persons, but let's take a look at some heresy. Modalism is the, one of the first ones that comes up. Modalism is the basic idea that you have different modes. The idea is that God the Father is all that really exists, but he can present himself as the Son and then later present himself as the Holy Spirit. So you have one God, but you have three different modes. And that's not good because you actually then reject the Trinity, don't you? By definition, you don't have three persons or three beings. You have three manifestations of the same person, which you protect the whole idea of monotheism. You, you do a good job protecting that, but you've rejected the other beings being true persons because now we just have the Father being uh, presented in three different modes. And you've got um, different types of monarchianism, dynamic and static, and we won't get into all of that. But then those are the ideas that you can, you can become a god. And, and, and Jesus, there's the, the, the doctrine of adoption, that Jesus was adopted as deity. You get into some really, really weird stuff, okay? But I want to show you a quick video that I think is funny um, it's from this website called Lutheran Satire, and they do a really good job of teaching theology through humor. All right, so these guys uh, put this together, and I think you'll, you'll maybe hear some analogies um, in here. Maybe you've used some of these analogies before. I know I have used some of these analogies before in, in, in days past um, that are wrong, and they'll, they'll kind of expose them in a funny way. Um, but they use St. Patrick, um, and if you know anything about St. Patrick, you know he had a missionary uh, journey to... Um, Ireland, and they had all sorts of snake things going on and worship, and it was weird stuff, and, and they'll make kind of a comment at the end of that uh, that, that I hope you catch, and it's pretty funny, but let's check this out, and as you're watching this, think, would I maybe say that? Okay, think to yourself, would I maybe say that? Okay, Patrick, tell us a bit more about this Trinity thing. Yeah, Patrick, tell us. But remember that we're simple people without your fancy education and books and learning, and we're hearing about all of this for the first time. So try to keep it simple, okay, Patrick? Yeah, real simple, Patrick. Sure, there are uh, three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet there is only one God. Don't get what you're saying here, Patrick. Not picking up what you're laying down here, Patrick. Could you use an analogy, Patrick? Sure. Uh, the Trinity is like uh, water and how you can find water in three different forms, liquid and ice and vapor. 
That's mortalism, Patrick. <laughs> what? Mortalism, an ancient heresy confessed by teachers such as Noetus and Sibelius, which espouses that God is not three distinct persons, but that he merely reveals himself in three different forms. This heresy was clearly condemned in Canon 1 at the First Council of Constantinople in 381 AD, and those who confess it cannot rightly be considered a part of the Church Catholic. Come on, Patrick! Yeah, get it together, Patrick! Okay, uh, then the Trinity is like uh, the sun in the sky, where you have the star and the light and the heat. Oh, Patrick. Come on, Patrick. That's Arianism, Patrick. Arianism? Yes, Arianism, Patrick. A theology which states that Christ and the Holy Spirit are creations of the Father and not one in nature with him. Exactly like how heat and light are not the star itself, but are merely creations of the star. That's a bad analogy, Patrick. You're the worst, Patrick. All right, sorry. The Trinity is like uh, this three-leaf clover here. I'm going to stop you right there, Patrick. <laughs> yeah, hold your horses, Patrick. You're about to confess partialism. Partialism? Yes, partialism. A heresy which asserts that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct persons of the Godhead, but are different parts of God, each composing one-third of the divine. And who confesses the heresy of partialism? The first season of the cartoon program Voltron, where five <laughs> robot lion cars merge together to form one giant robot samurai, <laughs> obviously... I've never heard of Voltron. Of course you haven't. It's not going to exist for another 1,500 years now, Patrick. Yeah, get with the program, Patrick. I mean, really, Patrick. I'm going to stab you in the face, Patrick. <laughs> okay, that was probably a bit much. All right, I'll try again. Uh, the Trinity is like how the same man can be a husband and a father and an employer. Modalism again. All right, then it's like the three layers of an apple. Partialism revisited. Fine. The Trinity is a mystery which cannot be comprehended by human reason, but is understood only through faith and is best confessed in the words of the Athanasian Creed, which states that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance, that we are compelled by the Christian truth to confess that each distinct person is God and Lord, and that the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-equal in majesty. Well, why didn't you just say that, Patrick? Yeah, quit beating around the bush, Patrick. Now let's all put on some giant green foam hats, get riotously drunk, and vomit in the Chicago River to celebrate our conversion. <laughs> So what do you guys do for a living? Well, we come from a long line of snake farmers, Patrick, but truth be told, business has been real bad lately. Oh. Yeah, about that. <laughs> so I hope you can relate to those and learn from those that sometimes we try to simplify the Trinity in a way that we actually get off track pretty bad. Um, so when we are talking about the Trinity, Sometimes we literally have to say, as the Athanasian Creed says, um, that, that we, we can't understand it fully, uh, that there is, a, there is a mystery to it. But there are some premises which we can hold to, and that is that all three persons are eternal in glory and, and, and share the essence of God. They all three are, in very nature, God. Um, and, and you can't divorce them. So I want to go through a couple of scriptures real quick uh, and, and talk through this a little bit. So Deuteronomy 6.4, everyone remembers this, right? And this is what the Jews would have had in mind when we're talking about how many gods are there. It says, the Lord your God is one. So premise one, there is only one God. 
And if you have to stop there, then stop there. If you can't explain how this works any further, you're safe just saying that, that, the God, that, that God is one. We see that he is expressed in three persons, but beyond that, I, I just have to settle with that. And you're probably not going to get in trouble. You start, to get in, you start to get in trouble when you start to describe these other things, right? The other idea here we get from the New Testament, John 8, 58, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Do you remember last week we were looking at that in, in, in Exodus 3 and Moses appear, uh, excuse me, God appeared to Moses in a burning bush and Moses says, who should I say sent me? And what, what was God's reply? I am. So when Jesus said before Abraham was born, I am, they knew exactly what he was talking about. That, that is an appeal to deity. That is an appeal to I am God. And remember, we, we have other instances where, where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. You've seen me. You've seen the Father. You've got these big ideas. Many times people wanted to kill Jesus because they clearly understood that he was claiming to be God. It wasn't, it wasn't a later development that, oh, some people started thinking Jesus maybe thought he was God. No, Jesus said he was God. And people clearly understood that that's what he thought. And they, they, they said, you're a heretic, and we're going to kill you for it, right? But then John 14, 16, Jesus is saying, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it, is ne it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. And so we see this beautiful ministry of the Holy Spirit, that he is the spirit of God working in, in our hearts, he is the one, as Wolfhart Pennenberg says, enables us to see Jesus Christ as the Messiah. We need the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus ascended, he sent this Holy Spirit. And, and, and do we understand everything there is to know about the Holy Spirit? No. But what we have to know is that he is God, and he's doing work. He is, he is active today. He is the one, when we go out and share our faith, that is actually drawing people to the Father. He is actually drawing people to Jesus Christ. Do you get that? We can, we can have all of the words we want to. We can try to share our faith as eloquently as we, we possibly can come up with. But at the end of the day, it is the ministry of the Holy Spirit who is drawing and calling people and wooing. And I want to show a real quick video from J.I. Packer talking a little bit about the Holy Spirit as a person. It is a fact that people don't take the Holy Spirit seriously. And I think that the fundamental reason is that they don't think of him as a person. The name Holy Spirit doesn't immediately tell you that this is a divine person. In fact, the Bible is very clear. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are the three persons who live, if I can put it that way, in the unity of the Trinity. And each is as truly personal as the other two. Once people are clear on that, then the next thing to tell them is, do you realize that the Holy Spirit is sent by the Lord Jesus to carry on his work of making disciples. How does the Spirit do that? Hey, by helping people understand the teaching of Jesus, making them aware of the reality of Jesus, actually confronting them and inviting them to himself. 
And then the Holy Spirit allures them. I shouldn't use that word advisedly. Allures them to Jesus. The Spirit makes them realize Jesus is wonderfully loving, wonderfully holy, wonderfully upright and glorious as a model of human life. The Lord Jesus shows us what human life ought to be, and he offers himself to us all as a savior who will transform us into his own image. How will that happen? Through the agency of the Holy Spirit. Now, once the Holy Spirit has established the link between us and Christ, he keeps out of sight. I sometimes say that the Holy Spirit is shy. He is fulfilling his ministry, all right, but his ministry is to point us to Christ the whole time. And you are enjoying the ministry of the Holy Spirit when you are aware of Christ the whole time. And I hope that the Holy Spirit will lead you into that life in which you are close to Christ the whole time. That will bring joy to the heart of the Holy Spirit who has made it happen, just as it will bring joy to the heart of Christ himself, who will embrace you in his love. So do take the Holy Spirit seriously and open yourself to having him point you to the Lord Jesus to be your savior, your master, and your friend. So I want you to turn your scripture to 2 Corinthians 3, 16. And we'll take one more look at this concept here of the Holy Spirit being God. 2 Corinthians 3, 16 says, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit, capital S. 2 Corinthians 3, 17, 16 through uh, 18. But this is the beautiful image that we see all throughout Scripture, that there, there is this concept that God is three in one. There is one God, but he exists and operates through three persons that are distinct persons, yet one in essence, God. And here's, here in 2 Corinthians from, from Paul is this idea that the Holy Spirit is involved in this unveiling process, as he says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. To me, that is such a beautiful verse, just to look at that God has sent someone, a person, and as, as, as Packer so well puts it, sometimes we think of the Holy Spirit as a force, don't we? But he's not a force, he's a person. And this is hard to wrap our minds around, but he is, he is a person. And his goal and his ministry is to lead us into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. 
I want to refer to a couple of creeds here as we, as we begin to close down this evening. Um, the Apostles' Creed, uh, written around 180 AD, you can go check that out, but it's a good summary of Christian theology. Lots of songs have been written in it, right? We believe in God the Father, we believe in, right? So there's these, these beautiful songs that have come out of that. The Nicene Creed uh, from the Council of Nicaea in 325, which is in response to Arianism, and it was focused on Christ being God, that he is co-eternal with God, that there was no time before Christ. Christ has always been in very nature God. All right, and then we have Constantinople 381 expanded on the Nicene Creed to start talking a little bit more about the Holy Ghost, all right, and the Holy Spirit. Chalcedon 451 focused in on the two natures of Christ because that was a big fight. Well, is he truly fully man and truly God? Well, maybe he's just a man. Well, maybe he's only God and his flesh really isn't real. They had to deal with that, so go look, at, go look up that one. Then the Athanasian Creed, uh, written around 500, really has a good, strong treatment of the Trinity. And St. Patrick, when he ended, when he was blurbing, when he's going real fast at the end, and he says, you cannot be confounded, can't be confused, but co-eternal in the glory, blah, blah, blah. That's what he was quoting was the Athanasian Creed, all right? So have, have a go look and, and check these creeds out. Uh, this good summary I want to leave you with. The Lord our God is but one living God and true God whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. The person of the Father, the person of the Son, and the person of the Holy Spirit are in one essence God. God is one in essence and three in person, the Trinity. And the Trinity in unity, equal in glory, co-eternal in majesty, without beginning and without end. Really quick, this is a book that I want you to check out. Um, Calvin Biesner. God in three persons, and with that, I'll let Chris close it. You know, in Baptist life, um, we tend to not look much at these creeds, uh, these this history. But but I want us to understand something very important. Sometimes we make a mistake in 2019 by thinking people a long time ago weren't very smart, and they're not as smart as us, and they're not as you know, technologically sound as us. And, and, and you know, when I went to Israel, I, I, I was blown away at the architecture and the way that they moved big pieces of rock without cranes and um, probably with slaves, but, but man hours. So, so if you know Rick Cuscio, he can just build stuff. You know, I mean, there were people like him that have been around a long time. They just understood geometry, understood construction, understood uh, all kinds of complex things. And so we need to understand that we are a part of a very big story. Uh, and we're just a part of it. We, we live in 2019, and these, these men of God, these people of God, have been contemplating the things of God for a long time. So these creeds are part of Christian history. And sometimes we look at the Bible and go, yeah, that's important. And then we just skip over to 2019 and go, yeah, we don't need to look at all those other things. Uh, But God was helping the people of God understand the things of God for a long time. And so it's important to not, in our Baptist life, because we don't, we really um, don't do a lot of teaching about the Apostles' Creed or these things. You might be exposed to it because you've heard some of it, but I want to challenge you not to just discount them because it's not part of our 
tradition because the reality is it is a part of our tradition. It is a part of our walk with the Lord. So that's why exposure to these things is important to us, uh, for us. And, uh, and so I want us to make sure we look these things up and study these things and, and wrestle with these things. And it's, it's my prayer that, and it's impossible for us to just come here and solve it all because we're not going to solve it all. There's, this is one of those things you go, okay, I'm going to go think about that. I'm going to go look these up and go, okay, they put these, these creeds together with incredible intentionality thinking about every word that was going into it. And they were solving different problems of the day. And, you know, we're the same way. We still have problems today that we need to solve. But let's not um, just discount those because we have this false idea that we're really smart today and they're not very smart back then. No, there were some great thinkers back then, back in the day. And we need to consider uh, the things that they write and the things that they've written. And so, and this is part of, of understanding our faith, that we're a part of a really, really big history and a big, beautiful story that God is continuing to write. And we just get to be a part of it. And that's why I think heaven is going to be so sweet because we're going to recognize how it all came together and we're going to go, wow, Lord, I'm just glad to be at the party. I'm just glad to be in the middle of it. And, and I got to be a part of it. And, um, and I think heaven's going to be a place of remembrance where we're going to be like hanging out with these guys in 500 going, dude, what was that like? And he's like, you have air conditioning? Are you kidding me? Quit complaining, you know? And, uh, and so I think that's probably what one of the things they're going to say. Yeah, bottled water. You get water out of bottles. Yeah, cool. Um, hey, thanks for being here. Thanks for wrestling with us. And uh, Yes, sir. Bailey Smith passed away. Yeah. That's right. You know what? I am probably somewhat of a spiritual descendant of Bailey Smith because he uh, led my pastor to Christ, Paul Salyer. Uh, and Bailey Smith went to be with the Lord uh, a few days ago. And did y'all, anybody know, how many of you know, have heard the name Bailey Smith in Oklahoma? Yeah. He's, he was um, uh, a well-known evangelist, man of God, and Yeah, that's a good word. Sure. Is it in Kentucky or where where is he he was living? Georgia, Georgia. I knew it was somewhere that direction. Yeah. You know, uh I called him a couple of years ago. I needed some advice. It's probably about three years ago, and I looked online, 
and I saw a number. So I called it, and it was him. <laughs> I was like, uh, I, was, I, was, I don't know what I was expecting, maybe some Holy Spirit answer. I don't know. I don't know what I was expecting, but, um, but I, I was really, it's amazing. So good advice. Well, let's go to the Lord. Lord, we, we do pause right now and thank you for Bailey Smith and his, his life. I pray for his family right now that you would strengthen them and help them. And, and Lord, what a, what a great moment that he got to see you face to face and, and just look you in the eye and say, I knew it was all true. And uh, thank you, Lord, for how you've used him and how you've used, you've used him indirectly and directly in my life. And I thank you for that. Lord, um, thank you for letting us wrestle through these truths of your word. And would you help us uh, be ready to um, to represent you to a world that needs you. Lord, we love you and we trust you and we thank you for tonight. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Before you leave, one one quick thing. And uh, um, one of the things that that is a conviction in my heart is uh, uh, is prayer. And so one of the things we're we're begun. Um, is we've begun praying on Wednesday nights. And uh, there's a lot of options on Wednesday nights. We hope you take care advantage of our classes that are available. But we also have a group that's meeting just to pray. It's not fancy. We're not doing a Bible study. We're not talking about prayer. I went to the, I mean, I don't know, I'm not going to say that. Um, but uh, sometimes we have prayer times and we talk about prayer and never pray. We're not doing that. We're praying. And so it's not like we're not having food. We're not having we're praying, and we need to pray. And so if you're interested in that, we're going to meet in my office after this. And I know not everybody can stay, but, uh, but I just want you to know that's happening, and we invite you. Normally on a Wednesday night, uh, we're meeting from 630 to 730. And, uh, but tonight we're going to pray for about 30 minutes uh, just uh, for a few things and, and uh, up in my office. So uh, we're going to meet in my office till it outgrows my office. So uh, that's where we're going to go. So. Uh, we don't have really have a room. We'll have to figure that out if it grows past my office. But uh, we just want to invite you to uh, see that as an option on, on Wednesday nights. And we, we hope that we're doing this every time our doors are open on Wednesday. So, hey, thanks a lot. See you.